So as we come to the book of Ruth tonight, you know, it's interesting because we, we finished Judges and you feel like, wow, we got through Judges. Like, ooh, that's that like quite a book, right? Like Judges is just like a dark time in Jewish history from about 1500 B.C. to about 1100 B.C. And you think, wow, you know, we cleared it. And then suddenly, here we are in the book of Ruth, which is in the time of the book of Judges. So really, when we come to the book of Ruth, it's like a, a bonus section. It's like an overtime. It's an extra time in the book of Judges. And I'm really glad we get the detail in the first few verses that it is connected to the time of Judges because it's a very happy story. You think how ugly the last three chapters are of the book of Judges that we went through two weeks ago. You're like, wow, so glad. It's like a road trip, that one stretch through West Texas. You're like, oh, I'm so glad to be back in you know, Las Cruces or something. And we cleared West Texas. And you're like, well, now you got another stretch. But this is a good stretch. And this book leaves you feeling really good. If Judges leaves you feeling kind of defiled, where it's like everyone did what was right in their own eyes, that's the last verse of Judges. This is like, man, everyone loved each other, and like God loves everybody, and there's a kinsman redeemer, and it's a happy ending for planet Earth and humanity. You know, it's like, it's the total opposite of how Judges ended. So I'm really glad we have this book. We don't know historically who was the author of this book, like the five books of Moses or Joshua. It's just, it's just here. It's sort of in a way like a mystery book, but an incredible story of love, redemption, Goel, the crimson, redeemer. And now it's, it's all about really how God would redeem humanity from our sins through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's where it's really moving ultimately to the uh, genealogy that connects uh, David through Jesse and Obed through the book of Ruth to Jesus. And this is just incredible. It's such a wonderful book. So we're going to enjoy this book for the next few weeks. And as we come to it tonight, we're going to pick it up in chapter 1. With that background, it is in the time of Judges, dark time, no kings, people doing whatever's right in their own eyes. But in the midst of people doing whatever they want to, there's people that are choosing to do what's right to do, just like what we saw with some of the judges like Deborah and Gideon and others. So we pick it up now in that background. And in verse 1, we read this. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and that would be the land of Israel. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. So in other words, they crossed over the Jordan River to the east side. He and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahalon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. So Ephrathites is the region like Orange County, and you live in Fountain Valley, Garden Grove, Huntington Beach. So Ephrathites of Bethlehem is the overall region. Bethlehem is a the town they're from in the broader region of Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now, they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Mahalon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. So this is our introduction to the book of Ruth. And Naomi's name means pleasant. But by the time you get to the end of chapter 2, and she returns her own people, they're like, oh, she's back. Naomi's back. She goes, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which is bitter. Because I've been dealt a bitter hand, and the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And, and that's 
where this is going to go. When you look at these first five verses, we have to admit this is a really tough stretch. Now, most of us are a little bit older in here tonight, and we understand a 10-year increment. In some ways, 10, 10 years, of course, is a decade, and we think 10 years is a long period of time, but it's pretty short when you think about it. 10 years goes by like that. Even as we've been talking about worship generation last two weeks ago on Thursday night, how, you know, 20 years ago we had Phil Wickham as a young teenager, Jeremy Camp was 20, and it just, you know, that's 20 years ago. It went by really fast. I was just thinking when I coached the British surf team at the World Junior Championships in Peru, that was 2011. That was after Jeremy Foster and I went to England and did ministry in England with Beyond the Dream Surf Movie. And, like, we, we did that, and that opened up the door to coach the British team at the World Junior Championships after I resigned the U.S. surf team. That was 10 years ago. I was thinking about, like, all those kids on that team, all those British kids with all those British names, they're all 10 years older. They're not 15, 16, 17. They're 25, 26, 27. And isn't life a lot different at 27 than 17 and 37 to 27? 10 years is an interesting time length. You only get so many 10-year increments, right? You only get so many 10-year increments. And we want to live a good, joyful life, but sometimes we just have no control over what happens during a 10-year reign, 10-year run of our life. And this was a tough 10 years. Maybe some of you tonight here, and I know many of your stories, but some I don't, maybe you've had a tough 10 years. We would sign up for 10 years of blessings before we'd sign up for 10 tough years, right? Amen? We already know socially and culturally it was a difficult 10 years because it's time of judges. Like, even in the best of time of judges, even when, like, Samson's flexing, you're like, yeah, Samson's a bad dude, but he doesn't need anybody. He wipes out everybody on his own. He's not a team player. He's just a one-man team. During the time of judges, you're like, yeah, Deborah's judging. She's awesome. But still, it was a difficult time. So difficult here that now we get a detail of a famine. And whenever there's a famine in the Bible, that gets our attention. Abraham had a famine. Isaac had a famine. Jacob had a famine. Joseph had a famine. Famines reveal a lot about us. When there's a famine in the land, it reveals a lot about us, especially in the context of the Bible in an agricultural society. For us, a famine's like extreme inflation, uh, low pay weight, low paid jobs, bad economy, supply distribution disruption. That's kind of like what a modern famine looks like because we're dependent upon all these things. So they have a lack of quality leadership as a whole during the time of the judges. But there were a few good leaders. We know that. But they weren't so much centralized, and they had an influence. But as soon as those leaders died, it was all back to worse than ever before. We know that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and there was a, a, a lack of the word of God, and everyone did what was right, and there was a famine of the word of God in that time. But there's a real famine in an agricultural society. That would be really bad, of course. And this famine affected this family, Amimelech and his wife, and two sons, they left the promised land where they had an inheritance. They had land. They had land to, to till and work. Land's a funny thing. And again, it's hard for us to relate to this, but my, my grandmother, Esther Truesdale, grew up on farms in Wisconsin. That's the Truesdales. That's my, my dad married as a brand of Truesdale. The Truesdale, that's where my great-great-grandfathers were in the Civil War. It's all the Truesdales. 
and they're all from upstate Wisconsin, and they had farms. And I've been back to visit the farms there in Richland Center, about 60 miles north of Madison. And my grandmother Esther purposed to never, and I've mentioned this before, but she purposed to not marry a farmer and never go back to a farm when she was 18. And she graduated high school with like 12 other kids, and she went to Madison, and she was not going to be a farmer's wife ever. And I've actually, in the things that I received from my dad is the deed that shows the land, the 500 acres that uh, Tullis Truesdale owned, her father. 500 acres of land in Wisconsin. And no one liked that land. And of the three daughters, Esther's two sisters, the one sister had a job during the Depression as a school teacher. She saved the farm with her income. In a society like farmlands of upstate Wisconsin, land is everything. John Wooden talks about his dad had a farm, the famous UCLA coach, and during the Depression, his dad lost the farm. So when Amimelech is is a farmer, he's got got an agri-society, and he leaves because there's a famine. He cannot produce crop. He cannot provide for his family. He cannot produce food. And so they go to Moab to a land where they worship different gods. If Jehovah's so good, how come we got to leave our land and we got to go to this other land? And by the way, do you remember which of the bad guys and judges was a Moabite? Eglon. Eglon was a Moabite. So what if this is during the time of Eglon? Like things are so bad in Israel it's after the time of Othniel, and there's this large man that looks like Jabba the Hutt from Star Wars, and he's ruling over everybody, <laughs> and he's Eglon, and he's taking tribute from you, from your brothers and your family there in your region of Judah and Bethlehem. And things are so bad, you've got to go over to where Eglon is actually ruling and reigning. Perhaps that's the case. It certainly could have been. Either way, the Moabites are not where you look to do your career advancement as a good Hebrew. But desperate times bring desperate circumstances, and they went for 10 years. They left what they knew and their inheritance and their house and their property, and they go to Moab to find work because desperate situations bring about desperate responses. And how many of you here tonight can relate to desperate situations in your life that require desperate responses? Maybe you gave up college. Maybe you had to give up a relationship, give up a job. Maybe abandonment. Maybe a husband left you. Maybe a wife left you. I know men have been crushed by their wives leaving them, and I know many women have been crushed by their husbands leaving them. Maybe he left you. He didn't pay child support, got a better lawyer when you didn't even see it coming. Guys do stuff like that. Actually, human beings do stuff like that. Before you know it, someone stole all the family inheritance, and instead of you getting one-fourth of the house in San Diego County, you got nothing, and your siblings took it, and now they own a home in Moreno Valley, and you own nothing. There's desperate things that desperate people do, and you can lose everything. And it happens. Then you're there, and then your husband dies. Now, we support widows in this ministry. We've supported many widows for years. And I also, also think, by the way, of divorcees as widows, but we can't really approach it the same way biblically. But we've often heard it said that divorce is, is harder than death. 
and watched my mom go through the divorce with my dad, it killed her in a way. And really, we still can't determine who really was the initiating factor in my parents' divorce. They got along the rest of their life, but they were never going to live together. And that's just the way it played out. But even in this ministry, we release funds periodically through the year to different widows in other countries serving in mission field here in Southern California, whose husbands were formerly pastors and died. And we do what we can to help them. And we know there's a blessing on it because God's heart is for widows and orphans. We know that without a doubt. It's huge. So it's worth noting that we do that. So we need to recognize she's now, Naomi's now a widow. So the heartache of losing her husband, crushing. Then her boys, because when you don't have a husband, particularly with single moms, you don't have the husband, you, you really gravitate toward your son, like my sister Barbie and her son Jimmy. Her whole life is vicariously through Jimmy. He's a cop in San Diego. We're so proud of you, Jimmy. And you graduate the academy, and, and single moms tend to do that, and it's very natural. He's the man that replaces his dad who left my sister. So now here in this situation, her husband's gone. Now there's two boys, and even their names imply difficult times, sickly, is one of the meanings of the names. And, 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 like, and both these boys die young. So in this 10-year period, she loses her husband. Then she loses both her boys, her firstborn and her baby. This story has, opens up the first five verses with tragedy. Famine in the land, the time of judges, going to Moab, losing your husband and losing both your boys. Both your children. And this is the introduction. This is the opening scene. It's like we're going to be looking at this drama for the next couple weeks on Tuesdays and Saturdays. And this is the opening scene. And this is life. And we know this works this way, doesn't it? This is raw. Now, this isn't so much evil raw like Judges 19 through 21. But this is raw. These are raw human emotions. I've been there right after someone's died and lost their spouse, when someone's burying a a child or a son, a young son. I was there when Melissa Henning Camp's memorial at Horizon Christian Fellowship, along with my wife, when Jeremy Camp was burying his first wife. And her parents there, the pastor and his wife, because Melissa Henning Camp's parents, her dad was a pastor, as well as Jeremy Camp's dad. So four months before, we're at the wedding together with Jeremy and Melissa Camp. Now here we are at her memorial at Horizon with Mike McIntosh. And the rawness of it, of burying your 20-year-old daughter, burying your bride of your youth. Jeremy became, you know, a widower. So we can't miss, because this, this sets in motion the beauty of the love in this story, of the grace of the power of God, of the spirit of God, of the moving of God in this drama, this incredible drama, this opening scene is like, wow, I don't know if we can watch this movie. You're just like, wow. But these things happen to good people, don't they? We can't pick when to live that there's a famine and it affects us this way. We got to go move to Moab, got to leave our house and our property, the farm in Richland, and just move on. Like, who can predict these things? This book is a lot about how we respond to these things and how we frame these things in faith or bitterness and how we grow and move through these things and learn that all things do work together for good to those who 
truly love God and are, are being touched by him for that work in their life. But make no mistake, this is 10 years of heartache. And it sets in motion the whole book because out of buffeting comes blessings. And the Lord can cause all things, anything. There's not one event in the human experience that God cannot redeem by the blood of his goel, Jesus Christ, and turn for good in the life of the person who frames it through faith, lives by faith, and trusts him fully with those experiences that affect them personally and culturally and socially. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughter-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-laws with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughter, daughters-in-law, this is who she gained, right? She gained two daughter-in-laws, but they're Moabites. They're not even Israelites. And she says to them in verse 8, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as he dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Like, find a new husband is what she's saying. You're still young. You're attractive. You're, it's there. There's a, there's a second chance. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. So we see she had a very close relationship with her daughter-in-laws, which is beautiful. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. As if she could give them another son, which we've studied in the law, that the one brother replaces where the other brother. When a brother dies, another brother was to take that former wife of his brother and raise up offspring so the inheritance would continue. We learned that going through the law last year. And if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight, and should I also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having a husband? What, for like 20 years? She's saying, even in God's law, there's no way that this is going to be redeemed through me. No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, here's where we see the introduction to this deep sense of hurt in her heart. And because the human experience beats us up, and because we are affected by events out of our control, like a famine, people who reign over us like an Eglon or whoever that maybe don't have a heart for the Lord, or a lack of godly leadership, which the Proverbs tells us how bad that is for the people in a city, in a country, that then it comes down to your personal life again where things can just seem to go against you, just seem to go against you, and you come to this conclusion that the hand of the Lord is against you. And because we have our own failures in our life, even the most godly person in this room, we have enough failures and enough honesty through humility looking in the mirror to know that if God wanted to spank us, we deserve it. Growing up with my Catholic background, I never had a problem understanding that I deserved punishment from the living God. But the Bible tells us we're under the wrath of God without faith in Jesus. And, and so, in a lot of ways, that sense of like, well, I deserve that. We think that way. See, when I stole a bicycle, goofing off with David Barr when I was like 12, we are going to the beach early in the morning, I stole the bike, thought it was funny. Then my favorite surfboard got stole, stolen a week later. I'm like, oh, what a bummer. That was my GNS, my favorite board. And you're like, that's interesting because I stole the bike and then someone stole my board. You're like, hmm. 
That seems to go together. And you think, well, I deserve it. I deserve it. Like, it's, it's easy to think that. So even if you think you're walking a really good life and things went wrong, be like, I did something wrong in my life. Like, you know what, this is, even though I didn't follow through on that thought, I had a really bad thought about those people. And, and so this is just, yeah, I, I deserve this. And we get this idea that God is against us, against us, against us. But we must remember that God says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he sent his son for us because God is for us. And we just, it's a process of grace and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to teach us that God is for us. And again, for me in the spring of 87, when I gave my life to Christ, I always was like, I'm going to earn, I'm going I'm to get right and God will accept me and I'm going to be saved. The problem is, when I have a bad day or a bad night or a bad stretch, I've, I've, put, I've drawn out more money out of the bank of self-righteousness, and I'm now in, in the red. I'm in a debit. And it, it just took that revelation from the Holy Spirit with Jesus on the cross where he says it is finished. And that epiphany by the Holy Spirit was like, I've saved you. You're never going to earn it. I'm not against you. I'm for you, and I gave my son for you. This is grace. So now what are you going to do? And every one of us in the human experience who's saved by grace has to come to a place where we realize that it is amazing grace and God is for us and he's not out to destroy us. He's, he's for us. And we need to have a relationship-driven faith based upon God's love for us and our response to that love. We can't have a legal relationship based upon being under his wrath and God's always against us. See, because here Ruth is like, the hand of the Lord is against me. It's against me. So her concept of Abba Father, Jehovah, and again, life has been cruel to her, so you can understand how you come to that. But because God permits things to happen, and doesn't everybody die? Everybody dies. You, we all know that in this room, right? Everyone you love will die. The only question is, will you die before them or will they die before you? And the loss of a loved one crushes you. So because God permitted death doesn't mean he's the author of death. Because God permits evil doesn't mean he's the author of evil. And every one of us is affected by evil in this room. Last year I had my identity stolen. I went through all these things. I had my check stuff. I, I went through a lot of, like, that's just the way it is in the world. You know, tens of thousands of people wake up around the world figuring out how to steal you, your money and separate you from your wealth. That's just the reality. You trust people, and they're a psychopath or a sociopath. And you trust them when you're buying a car, and you shouldn't have, because they have no feelings, and they don't care what they do to you with no remorse. And you think they think like you, but they don't. That's the way life works. And because we experience these things, we can think God's against us. WG, Body of Christ, Humanity in 2022. God is for us. He's not against us. Now, he might chasten us, yes. But in chasing us, that's how a father shows he loves his son. God is for humanity. He gave his son for humanity. And though we understand how Naomi can come to this conclusion that somehow God is against her, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, that's such a powerful statement. Have you ever felt like that? Again, I know some of you have lost loved ones and been grieved 
with the deepest hurt that humanity and the human experience can bring you. Either by, again, death, life, persecution from bosses, employment, bullying. And you might think that the Lord is against you. He is never against his bride, the church. He is always for his bride. And while he does, he's not for the wicked in that sense, he still died for the wicked. He still, Jesus on the cross said, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing when they're blaspheming him. But we understand how she could think this. And you know, you follow the bread, right? Desperate people, when you really get down to desperate things in the end of the age, will be people desperate for a loaf of bread. The book of Revelation tells us that. Most people, you know, food's what drives us. And most people on this planet are driven every day just to get daily bread. You follow the bread. She returned after 10 years because she heard that there was bread. That God had delivered, had visited his people and there was bread in the land. You see that there in verse 6. Think how humbling it was for her to go back home. Having sold the home. Having sold the land. To start anew in Moab. Going out with her husband and her two boys and... Now she's going back with two daughter-in-laws that, that she's told them not to come back with her. And that sense of humiliation. They had an inheritance that God gave them. Her husband made decisions with it. They lost it. This book, the Goel, the Kinsman Redeemer, Boaz, is because they lost their property. They sold their house, their property, their farm. They sold it. They, they, they took a venture in finances and went this way to Moab, and now she lost everybody but these two daughter-in-laws that love her dearly. And she's going back, and she does not have her house. She does not have her property. She does not have employment. She doesn't have social security benefits. She's going back to nothing, and she's coming back embarrassed because her friends are going to perceive that somehow God's hand is against her. Man, that, that's... Ladies and even gentlemen, this, this is very, she had her husband, her two boys that she was proud of there in Israel and Judah. And now she's coming back with none of them. She's coming back from her perspective with nothing but the hand of the Lord against her. And she's coming back to nothing. She's in a very desperate place, but there's bread. And this is interesting because so often in our brokenness, God will use the bread to move us and direct us where he wants us to be. Because we still need to get a job. We still need to figure out how to put food on the table. And we still need to look to the Lord. And, we, and we, we can't just roll over and die. So even if you're a widow, at some point you have to move past your sorrow and, and find a way to provide for yourself or how it's going to work. Or a divorcee. Or a parent who buried an adult child. You have to follow the bread. You have to figure out where you're going to live, how you're going to provide for yourself, and how this is going to work, because you're still alive. They're gone, and you're still alive. And you have to figure out how this is going to work. And so often, God works supernaturally through the practical. All she heard is there was bread. There's work. There's job opportunity. There's bread in Judah. And it's humbling. You know, you, at least she didn't roll over and die and say, I can't face my former neighbors. There's bread in Judah. And she's going back. Because in the end, we need to live. And God uses our need for work, 
our need for daily bread, to look to him. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily bread. So, God wants us to depend on him for daily bread. He wants us to, to look to him to provide the job. All that we have is from the Lord. All that we will ever have is from the Lord, temporal and eternal. With food and clothing, be content. God uses daily bread. When we left Vermont in 1995, uh, actually 96, when we left Vermont in 96 to come back to California, Jennifer, we'd gone there to plant the Calvary Chapel in Burlington. We lived there 14 months. Church was about 50 people in a hotel, which is really strong for New England in a Calvary Chapel, by the way. It was a blessing. But in the end, we couldn't stay. We couldn't stay because I couldn't make enough money in room service and pastoring the church to provide for my family. I could not provide bread for my family. And we knew because, and we're in a foreign land, might as well have been Moab. And we knew because it had dried up like the story of Elijah with the brook Cherith and the brook dried up and the ravens quit bringing the food. We knew that God works supernaturally in a natural way. If you don't have the employment and you don't have the income and you can't pay the rent, then there's got to be another door that's going to open up. And I got to tell you, it was humbling for us to load up that 20-foot rider truck. Timmy was two at the time. And leave Vermont. And I felt like my, a tail between my legs. We left Vista five years so confident and full of faith five years before. We're going to plant Calvary Chapels on the East Coast. We're going to be like the Apostle Paul. We're going to do all these things. And we started the church in Virginia. At one time in Virginia, we had a beautiful house and medical benefits and all this stuff. We go to Vermont. We're going to live by faith. And then we get crushed. And we incur debt. And we load up that rider truck. I had to ask my dad for money. Isn't that always humbling, right? You know, like, you, you, raise your hand. But praise the Lord if you can't ask your dad, by the way, or your mom. You want a dad, you know, I used, I, I'd never pay my mom back, but I always pay my dad back. Because there'd be someone in your life that needs, you got to have someone that can really help you when you're divine. And my dad and I had a good relationship that way. My dad's been a good man to us, so it's very natural for me to take care of my dad now at 91. Not just because he was good to us, but because right, but still. And we got back to California, we had nothing. It was so humbling to come back to Southern California with our tail, with, not for Jennifer, but for me, like feel like a failed pastor, my tail between my legs, that the hand of the Lord's against me, that, you know, the promises don't apply the way I thought they did. We did a venture of faith like Chuck's book or the Harvest book, and all we got was clobbered. And now I got to figure out how to get a job in a surf shop or in a flower packing facility in Vista. It was homing to go to my brother's former boss and work in a, a flower packing house for minimum wage, asking for a job to make bouquets at 6 in the morning to provide bread for my family. Then the Lord said, no, I got something better for you. And then the Kobe and Sandals gave us all the money for no reason. And then I got hired at Surf Ride Surf Shop. And that opened the door to become a surf coach. And the rest is uh, history. But you know what it's like to come back, right? Like to come back home broken, it's pretty humiliating. But if it doesn't break us in a bad way, it breaks us in a good way. The Lord of the hands, I felt like the hand of the Lord was against me when we came back from Vermont. I really did. I was like, oh, Lord, you're against me. But it was all working in us to prepare us. 
And that's the beauty of this book. It has a very happy ending. It has a very happy ending. Just that we can just enjoy this movie right now. Because trust me, I told you this. Sometimes if you watch like a Russian movie on like uh, Amazon Prime or Netflix or something, like sometimes I, I, don't, like, I don't like where this is going. I'm going to go to the end right now. I just go ahead right away. I'm, going, I'm skipping ahead to the end. I got to know, especially if it's like four episodes. Like I just got to know, do they die or do they live? Because in Russian movies, half the time they die. Because Russians are used to bad news and bad endings because that's how it's been for Russia for a long time. And I'm like, I don't want to watch this bad. This is a good ending. This is the happiest ending ever. So, can you relate? Can you relate to like losing everything and starting over and feeling like the hand of the Lord's against you and you're almost embarrassed to show up at the family gathering or back in the community? I must say it was a little embarrassing to be vacuuming a surf shop and selling wax in North San Diego County where I was once the California kid and the pipe master and everybody's surf hero. So embarrassing that one kid said, I refu-, he said, you are not allowed to vacuum the surf shop. You are Joey Brand, the pipe master. No, I'm like, dude, after I've been through in Vermont, get away. This is my vacuum cleaner. I got this. I know, I know you don't want to see me vacuuming the surf shop at seven at night. But believe me, what I've been through in room service at the Sheraton, this is all good. But that, that, that is humbling, isn't it? It's a good thing. We have to believe that God is over all that. New jobs, new beginnings, loss of everything, reload, reboot, reset. But the hand of the Lord is not against us. So, so keep that in mind. He's for us. But we can think that, so we relate. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Oprah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from falling after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw, that is, Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. This is one of the key verses in the whole book of Ruth. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Now, let's think about Ruth here. This is radical. This is radical. Her whole identity. So she's raised a Moabite. Okay, so maybe Eglon was her king. Maybe not. Who knows? But someone like Eglon. The Moabite gods. We're talking Balaam, Balaam and, you know, that kind of, that's, these are Moabites. Like, <laughs> perpetual enemies of Israel. You're, if you grew up as a Moabite, you, you hated Israel. It's like being a Palestinian and, and, and like how that would be for most Palestinians to be raised to not like the Jews. Like for a Moabite, the Jews were your perpetual enemies. And here this Jewish woman came with her husband and her two sons in a hard time 10 years before. You fell in love with her son. You fell in love with her son. He was handsome. He's good looking. Maybe he looked like David or something. You know, he is tribe of Judah. And you fell in, and you married him and, and he had a different God than your God. You were unequally yoked. And maybe your parents supported that because they liked him because he won them over with his personality or maybe your parents didn't like him at all. But know this, the Moabite gods were different than Jehovah God. And Naomi's God is a true God, Jehovah. And Ruth's God are false gods. Two completely different worlds. You talk about being unequally yoked. This isn't just ethnic distinctions in getting married. This is total cultural distinction in getting married. 
This is like a Hindu marrying a Muslim. Like, these are just, just tremendous distinctions. And yet, they got married. And there was something that went on in that marriage during those 10 years or 8 years, 7 years, the marriage. There was something about Jehovah God, our Heavenly Father, Abba Father, working in Naomi's life, working in uh, Elimelech's life, and the two boys' life. There was something about their family that drew Ruth to their faith, which is incredible because Naomi is saying, God's hand's against me, and she, the same, she's saying, God's hand is against me, and Ruth is saying, your God is my God. I'll take the worst day on planet Earth with your God than the gods I grew up with. That's what she's saying. So it's like, because people say, hey, if God's so good, how come he let your child die? People said that to me when we lost our son. If God loves you, how come he took your son? If God's a God of love, why did he let this happen and all that? All those things that foolish people speak in the foolishness from the depths of their foolish hearts. Sitting back as judge and jury of the living God who's judge of all. But isn't this amazing that, that Ruth says, your God will be my God. So you're thinking like, if you're evaluating world religions and you're, you think you're really smart, and like, okay, I'm looking at Hinduism, Muslim, Buddhism, oh, peace, you know, like Jesus people, you know, I don't know. You look at this person, like, I don't know if that's Jesus. Or, but you look at this person, well, they seem more like Jesus. And you, you're just evaluating, you're neutrally evaluating world religions and faiths and what they produce in people's lives. Hindus are, are racist because the case system of the Hinduism is racist. It subjects people, they can't come out of their case system. So Hinduism is racism. Islam is intolerance to infidels, so you just send your son to blow himself up, and okay, Christianity is this. This is the message of Christianity, but then you see like people not living it, so you blame Jesus for that. It's just, you know, you just go on and on. So in the marketplace of competing world religions, Ruth lived in this family for a number of years, but less than 10, and what she saw Death, 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 death of all three males. A family that lost everything in going to her land. A family humming themselves to live under the jurisdiction of her land and the magistrates of her land. And yet, what happens in her life? And she says, your God will be my God. Your people, who your God just wiped out, will be my people. We have to think about this one, WG, so go home and think about this when we come back Saturday and talk about this. We have to think about this. What went on in the house of Elimelech that made this woman, his daughter-in-law, as he died, his son died, and the other son died, and it's only the mom left who says God's against her. What made her say, your God will be my God, and your people will be my people? Man. It's how you frame it, isn't it? She lost her husband. She had a memorial service for her husband. She lost her father-in-law and her brother-in-law. She is as wounded as anyone in this first chapter. And she says, yet your people will be my people, the people of Jehovah. And your God will be my God, Jehovah himself, God of the burning bush. Isn't it amazing? I want this kind of faith. That you only want to be with God's people more than ever before. 
in identity. And you only want to identify with God more than ever before when it's the worst time that anyone could ever look at in your life and say, why would that person ever serve God? And even not even their God. So as she went through heartache and sorrow and trials and tribulations, something happened in the deepest recesses of her heart where she determined her gods that she grew up with were not the gods that comfort. The gods of the Moabites are not the gods of all comfort, who comforts us in our distress, that we might comfort others. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. But Jehovah is the God who comforts. And it's not the Moabite gods who comfort her when she buried her husband and he breathed his last. It was Jehovah who comforted her. God of the burning bush. God of Mount Sinai. God on the cross. God who says he so loved the world he gave his son. This is what drew Ruth. And she's so determined in her faith. You know, Sam talked about the, the crazy man, the Gagarin Gagarini just, and he's like, I'll go, let me go with you. Jesus is like, no, go back and tell everybody. And so he goes to Decapolis and feeds 4,000, right? What an amazing insight Sam had from that study. But Ruth is like, she's like clinging. Like, you know when your grandkids cling to your leg like that? Like, and you're like, you know, like fully clinging. She's not going. You're like, shoot. She's not going. She is yoked. To Naomi, her people and her God, who she says is against her, she is yoked to Naomi, come hell or high water for the rest of her life. Isn't that beautiful? Could we be yoked to Jesus and the people of Jesus, come hell or high water for the rest of our life? I sure hope so. There is nothing that you could say with like superficially, oh, come forward and have a great life. Come forward and think good thoughts. Come forward and have everything go your way. Get the raise, get the job, get the girl, get the guy. No, it's just like, come forward and watch everybody die that you love. And here she is, she's going forward like, yes, Lord. It's an amazing story. This is real faith. This is real faith. And God did something with her. But think about this. She is in the genealogy line to bring Jesus into the world. This is amazing. Which reminds us that God's always working even in the darkest time. Doesn't matter if Eglon's king or Ehud's going to get him with the left hand knife, sword. What matters is what each person does with the Lord in their journey. Doesn't matter if there's a famine. Or is there bread to follow back to the promised land? What matters is what each person, how they frame their life, how they see the Lord, how they see themselves with the Lord, and what they're going to do about it. She was determined, verse 18, which is almost as important in this whole book as your God will be my God. She was determined. I think, am I determined? I'm not half as determined as I should be. And I'm definitely not half as determined as I want to be. So I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. A greater degree of determination to serve the Lord in 2022 is a really good idea. For me, for all of us. Verse 19, we close out the chapter tonight. Now, the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. It happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? which means pleasantness. But she said, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. 
Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me, the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth and the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So the return is practical because it is a timing of harvest. Because remember, it says there's bread. You follow the bread, and it's barley harvest. Which just shows that even sometimes it's practically the timing of everything. Like how this story unfolds in the next couple chapters is just with Boaz and the, the reaping of the fields. If they come in a different time, the fields aren't being reaped. The way this story unfolds, it's perfect timing. Boaz, his employees, Ruth, the fields, the harvest, the barley harvest, it's all, it's all right there. There's, there's no coincidences in the kingdom of God, just divine movement in your life. And God works supernaturally in a practical way so often. I'm trying to get home in time to start a new book on a Tuesday. I don't want to get back on a Saturday and miss the midweek. You see what I'm saying? Like, we think practically. I just read in the book of Acts how Paul was determined to get Jerusalem in time for the feast. There are very practical things that move our calendar and move our life that God works in the midst of supernaturally. And the timing of when they came back, there was bread in the land, and they followed the bread trail. And so just the practicality of needing food and provision brings them back. And uh, Naomi has to overcome the sense of, well, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to close with this thought. Where she says that the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, verse 20, and I, I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So now that the elephant in the room has been addressed... Just let me live my life. I get it. I left with it. I left a house and property and sold it. My husband made that decision, and now I have none of it. And I'm here with a Moabitess, my daughter-in-law, and we're looking for free food. I get it. But you know, from brokenness comes the greatest of all blessings.